Have you ever known anybody who just seemed to have like the direct line to God when it came to their prayers? Like somebody who, whenever they prayed, it was just so quick that their prayers were going to be answered. When I was young, I used to think, because I had met a few people like that, I used to think that there was some kind of unwritten spiritual gift that was like not in the Bible, but some people just have this special gift of their prayers get answered more than other people's prayers get answered. Because that was the only way I could make sense of what I was seeing, that I just knew some people had some seeming special ability, like a superpower almost, to just have their prayers answered almost as soon as they offered them up. I wonder how you process that. Does God work that way? Does he give some people special power that their prayers are answered more often than other people's? Well, it doesn't quite work like I thought when I was young, but the surprising answer in the Bible is yes. Some people do get special power added to their prayers. And this text we're going to look at today is going to show us two different kinds of people who sometimes are the same person and sometimes are two different people who get special power added to their prayers. And then it's going to show us one thing as a church that we can all do that can add to the prayers that we unite and offer together. And so I've been praying this week that the Lord would use it to bear not just in you the fruit of powerful prayer, but in us as a church the fruit of powerful united prayer, the kind of prayer that God uses powerfully to bless the people of Indianapolis and the people of Greenwood. And so if you have a Bible, let me ask you to turn it to James chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, grab the Dark Pew Bible in front of you and turn on to page 179 in the back of it. We're going to read James 5 verses 13 to 18, where we hope to learn a number of things about prayer, two kinds of people with special power added to their prayer, and one thing we can all do to make our church's prayer more powerful. Let's look at it together. The Spirit breathes out, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Amen. Now, all of James is written to bring each of us into Christian maturity, into full maturity in Christ that bears fruit. And indeed, all the point of all Christian preaching is to produce mature Christians. And today, as I said a minute ago, the fruit that I think the Lord wants to produce in us is more powerful prayers as individuals and as a group as well, as a church as well. Uh, but before we get to the answer to the question that we asked earlier, what are those two special people whose prayers are given special powers, uh, we need to notice a few things about where James puts his words and the important line of thought that's going on here that connects this passage with what we talked about last week. Now, a few of you might remember what we talked about last week. Uh, some of James's readers were being ripped off in their business deals. They were being oppressed. Uh, the court system was failing them when it was supposed to protect them. And so what James writes to them is basically two big points, right? God hears you when you cry out to him, 
And so wait patiently for the return of the Lord. You remember that? The big point was wait patiently for the return of the Lord. And then he gave a couple applications of that, right? He says, you know, don't take your frustrations out on each other. Don't grumble and complain against each other. And you're going to be tempted to swear so that people will listen to you because no one's listening to you in your oppression. Don't do that either. And he goes right from that into what he says here. Are you suffering? Pray. And so this is really kind of the third application of that wait patiently for the Lord's return. How do you wait patiently for the Lord's return? We don't do it by grumbling against each other, he says. Don't do it by swearing just so people will listen to you. But what should you do? What you should do is pray. Take your sufferings to the Lord. And so in a sense, the praying part can help you with the other part, right? Because when you are suffering, when you've experienced injustice, it just puts a burn inside your heart, right? And that just wants to come out. And you're tempted to take it out on other people, right? A husband has a bad time at work, his boss does something bad to him, and he drives home and he gets home and his wife says, hey honey, what are your plans for tonight? And then she just regrets even asking him that, right? Because he's just, he's just kind of ready to snap because of how he's been treated. Some people take out their sufferings and their problems on whoever is kind of nearby. Uh, others of us, what we tend to do is we will take out our sufferings on other people by kind of venting to them, right? So. This husband would drive home after a bad day at work and he would come in and he'd say to his wife, you cannot believe what my boss did today, right? Because he's just got to vent and tell somebody about it, right? In a third instance, some of us handle this by internalizing it, right? We'll just think forever over and over again about this injustice that's happened to us. Right, we'll think about it over and over again. We'll have pretend arguments with the person who wronged us in our mind. So that husband would drive home, he'd pull in the driveway, and he would realize that for the last 15 minutes of his drive, he's been arguing with his boss in his head, right? And then he'd go inside and his wife wouldn't know anything about it. Different people handle this stuff different ways. But what James is saying here by connecting these thoughts, he's saying, if you bring your concerns to the Lord, if you bring your complaints to the Lord, you'll have an easier time not taking it out on each other, right? If you're wired such that what is in you comes out of you and what is inside of you is the frustration that comes from being hurt by other people, well, that's gonna come out of you one way or another, right? And on the other hand, the Psalms are full of complaints to the Lord, right? People are crying out to him, and almost sometimes it has this tone of, God, what are you doing? I don't understand what's happening. Can you believe, God, what the, my enemies are stacked against me, full of complaints, offered right up to the Lord? So when you've got that ache in your heart, the only way you can avoid taking it out on other people is to give it up to the Lord. And so James, in the midst of that context, says, are you suffering? Pray. So that's how last week's text connects to this week's text. That's the train of thought that's going on. And that theme of the Lord's return is going to come back later on in this text. That's part of why we talked about it now. Let's look at what the text itself says, though. In the very beginning, uh, in the first set of verses there, you're going to see three questions, right, in verses 13 and 14. Is anyone suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone sick? Right? And in all three of those, what does he tell you to do? To find the appropriate way to respond and give those feelings that come with that up to the Lord. 
Now, he doesn't mention every way that you can feel. He doesn't mention every situation that you can be in. But by calling these three things to mind, he's kind of saying, no matter what situation you're in, no matter how you feel, bring it to the Lord. Are you suffering? Bring a prayer up to the Lord. Are you cheerful? Walk down the halls singing a song of praise to the Lord. Again, you're wired in such a way that whatever's in you is going to come out of you. And God designed you for relationship with him. And so whatever situation and frame of mind you're in, he wants you to tell him about it. He wants you to connect with him about it. The same way that when a husband comes home from work and his wife is there, when a wife comes home from and her husband is there, they want to talk about what's gone on in their day and how they feel about their day. The Lord is the same way. He says, bring that up to me and I want to hear it. Now, this is a teaching that challenges the version of Christianity that a lot of people have. See, for a lot of people, maybe even for some of us here, the teachings of the Bible are not much more than good moral teachings that will bless our lives. Uh, For decades, we have been raising Christians to look to the Bible as a good document to build your life on, as a good document to build a society on, but not much more than that. And so we come to church sometimes just looking for like six helpful tips to give me a stronger marriage, right? Because I need a stronger marriage. So I'll come to church and I'll get that and I'll just get that and then I'll go home. Or, you know, five tips for parenting. I'll come and I'll get that because I need help as a parent. That will help me and then I will go home because we have been raised to think that our flourishing and our success is the most important thing in the world. Nothing more important than you being successful. That's what the voice of America has been teaching us. And so we're tempted to use church as like a supplement to that, one more vitamin to kind of help my life flourish a little better, be a little better, and that's about it. And then all of a sudden we come to this text and it says that actually there's a real God in heaven who wants to have a relationship with you. Well, that's very different from the moralistic version of Christianity that a lot of us are used to. Jesus' ways are good, but there is more than that to the Bible. There is a God who wants to have an intimate relationship with you, who wants you to bring your every concern to him, who wants you to sing praises to him, and wants you to know him so much better than what so many of us are seeking. Jesus just doesn't, doesn't just want you to obey him. He wants you to bring him the depths of your heart. So are you suffering? James says, pray. Are you cheerful? Sing to him. Are you both at the same time? Then do both at the same time. So practically, let me tell you the best way that I have found to to do this. I think there are two things that really help us to obey these particular instructions here. One of them is just to have a set of songs in your mind that you can just kind of recall at any time. And the other one is to know the Psalms well. Let me talk about the first one for a minute. I think most of us in this room, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, you probably, if you sat down for two or three minutes, could write down a list of like a half a dozen or so of your favorite hymns or worship songs, songs that you just cherish and love. If you were to spend two or three minutes writing those down and just bring that list to the front of your mind, 
for a lot of you, that is all you would need to be equipped to just kind of burst out in praise whenever something really fantastic happens in your life. Because now you've got songs at the ready, songs that you already know by heart, songs you're used to singing in church or when you listen to the radio. And so you can just walk down the halls, then sings my soul, my soul, just humming and singing praise when you're in a good mood. Now it's harder to do that when you're like, all right, I'm in a good mood, let me try to think of a good song. Because some of you know like 20,000 songs, right? And it's just so hard to think of one for the moment. So just go ahead and make yourself a short list of a half a dozen or so so you can just pick A, B, and C and just go with one. Now, some of you, on the other hand, are not very confident singers, and I get that. I'm not the most confident singer myself, even though I used to be a leader in worship in the church. Uh, let me give you a trick that you can use as well. If you've got a phone and you can play music on your phone, or if you've got an iPod or anything like that, just get yourself one album or one playlist full of songs that you love and just crank that thing at the right time and sing along. Because guess what happens when you sing along with really good singers on a stereo? You sound fantastic, right? You just sound so much better because you don't hear yourself. You hear them. So just crank that thing in your car. Have it up the ready. I've got a playlist on my phone of just all of my favorite worship songs. And when I'm in the mood to worship, boom, I just fire that thing up and belt it out in my car. And nobody hears how bad I sound. And it's fantastic. That's a great way to lead yourself in worship of the Lord, just to prepare yourself a little bit like that. And for most of you, it wouldn't take you but two or three minutes to put those songs in a playlist on your phone and just think of them in your head. And then you're ready for a life of worship for your whole lifetime. Okay, second thing you can do is learn the Psalms well enough that you know for certain times of life and certain emotions, there's a Psalm for that, right? Uh, it just really helps, I think, if like, for instance, if you're reading the Word of God and you have got, you're just in amazement, like, wow, God's Word is so good. This is a good word right here. It's good in that moment to know that Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 will give you words for how you feel right then, right? And so right in the middle of that, you can flip over to Psalm 19 and just start praying to God. God, your words are more desirable than gold. Yes, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb and moreover by them your servant is warned and in keeping them there is great reward. There are good words in the Psalms for how you feel right then so you can turn there and be ready to offer them back up to the Lord. Or when you've sinned against God and you want words to confess your sin to the Lord, it really helps to know that Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are there for just that purpose. And so you can flip, say, to Psalm 32 and just start praying, I acknowledge my sin to you, God, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. The whole time, there were words in the Psalter waiting for you to give words to the things that you felt. But you got to know where they are in there, right? Or you're not going to be able to use them. Now, it takes years in the Psalms to know them that well. And so we made for you this week and we put in your bulletin a little handout that you can use for just that purpose. Consider it like a head start on that journey of figuring out which Psalms are right for which occasions. Now, there are so many more, right? And, and if you use that thing, you're probably gonna use a pen and like scribble a whole bunch more on there. That will get you started. And when you've got those moments where you're saying, I've got something to express to the Lord, I want good words for it, use that thing and and find for yourself good psalms that have good words for you. 
All right, now the point is then God wants us to pray all the time about everything. And next, he's got some really specific instructions for what to do when you're sick. And those instructions are going to give us the first answer to the question we asked earlier. Who are those special people who get special power added to their prayers, right? So let's look at verse 14 together. We're going to find the first answer there. He says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So when you're really sick then, what you can do is you can call the elders in your church and they will come to where you are, to your hospital or to your bed at home or wherever you are, anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord to set you apart for a special measure of God's power and of God's healing. And I have been wondering all week for us good card-carrying Baptists how awkward that was going to be to read for us, right? Like if the, if the elders part didn't trip you up, Surely you notice the poor oil on the person, right? And that's a little, un- we've, we, most of you have probably never participated in that before. And so let's, let's slow down and just ask what he's talking about there. Um, I'll give you the backstory. The backstory is that in the New Testament, not every church was led by men called, called elders, uh, but some of them were, and the goal at the time was to get every church under the leadership of men who were part of that church, multiple men who had equal authority who were called elders. Uh, now, the word elder is used interchangeably with the word pastors. That's where we get the word pastor from today. And sometimes you'll see in the scripture the word bishop, which is also used interchangeably. They're all the same thing in the Bible. They're used in a flip back and forth kind of way. So the ideal was for each church to be led by multiple pastors who shared an equal authority over the church. Uh, So you see in the church of Jerusalem, for instance, the very first church that was formed, they pretty much had elders from day one, because I mean the 12 disciples, they had plenty of good candidates for elders right there. Uh, But then, and, and James, by the way, who wrote this book was probably one of those elders. Then though, out in the frontier, in a place like Crete, you see Paul writing to Titus and saying, the reason I left you in Crete is so that you could install elders in all of the churches there. So that's this goal they're trying to get them to. It was kind of a sign that a church was kind of ready to stand on its own. It didn't need the apostles visiting it quite as often anymore. Uh, Instead, they had men right there, elders who could lead them. Now, a big part of the pastor and elder's job is, is prayer. And I spend a significant part of my week in prayer as well. Uh, I was once serving in a church where there were elders leading the church, and they would have two meetings a month. One would be kind of like what you would think of as a board meeting. You know, you go there and we talk about stuff and make decisions. And the other meeting, once a month, was dedicated to doing nothing but praying for particular people. We'd go through the prayer list, pray for people, call people, and figure out how we could pray. A whole meeting, once a month, that was nothing but prayer. To say nothing of all the times they visited people and all the times they spent alone in prayer. Prayer was a huge part of that job. But this is one very special way that men who are called in the office of pastor or elder actually have a commission to not just go and pray, but to set someone apart in the name of the Lord, which means this comes with Jesus' authority. Like they are commissioned by by the Lord in his name to set someone apart for a special measure of God's power and God's healing. 
And the way that they can do that is the same way that Old Testament prophets would set apart priests and kings by anointing them with oil. Uh, now, sometimes that can be done by pouring a whole vat of oil on somebody's whole head. You know, you can you remember that imagery from the Psalms running down Aaron's beard, right? Sometimes it's real dramatic like that. Sometimes it's just take a little oil and put it on the person's forehead. But it's a sign and a symbol that comes with the authority of Jesus in the name of the Lord that allows that person to be set apart and receive a special measure of God's power in their healing. And what a fantastic thing to receive. What a comforting thing to have to know that your pastors, your elders have set you apart for God's special hand on you in this season. And so James tells them, call the elders to come out and do this because how fantastic is it to have a blessing like that? Now to do this, you have to have two things, right? You have to have some oil lying around, which I think we can take care of that. And the other thing you have to have is you've got to have more than one pastor or elder around because it's called, called them together. They have to be united in this request for it to come with that authority. And so I have to admit to you that this is one way that your church can't serve you right now. We can't do this because I'm the only pastor here and around right now. Uh, and so we pray for the day when the Lord has multiple men who have that authority who can go out together in a united way and set someone apart in the name of the Lord like this. What we do have in the meantime is righteous deacons who will visit you and who are faithful to see you in the hospital and to see you in the homes when you're sick. And we'll find out in just a minute as we get later in this text how important that is. But I think though this text calls us to look and say it is really important to have more than one person in the church who has that office, to have that office of pastor and elder so that Multiple men can go out and in unity do this together because this is something we can't do for you right now. And it's true that it's better to be led by godly men, like being led by godly men is more important than what you call those men. That's true. I'd rather have our deacons than roll the dice on random elders, that's for sure, because having godly men is really the most important thing. But this text tells us that it is important what you call those leaders because only commissioned elders get that authority to anoint someone with oil in the name of the Lord. And so this is something that our deacons cannot do. They have not been commissioned to do it, and they're not able to do it for you, no matter how much they pray for you and no matter how righteous they are. So that is the first kind of person who has a special power to their prayer, commissioned elders united in their request to set someone apart in God's name. It's part of that office. Uh, now, before we go on to the second type of person with the very special power in their prayer, let's look at the picture James gives us in verse 15 and what that picture points to. Look at verse 15 with me. He says, The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has, been, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, I know that sounds probably like a bit of an overpromise, right? You read that and think, wait a minute. If I pray in faith, I will be raised up and healed? Like that's all it takes? And there are certainly people who would corrupt a text like this to say that if you have enough faith, you'll receive healing. And if you do not receive healing, it's because you did not have enough faith, right? 
which is wrong for several reasons, the most obvious of which is that everyone dies. The wages of sin is death. And so death's going to come for us all eventually. And so if we believe that just enough faith will heal you every time, eventually we're going to be proven wrong. Uh, But if you want a really direct example of that, Paul actually had to leave someone in a city one time who was sick. Uh, It was his partner in ministry, whose name is tough to pronounce, but he writes to Timothy and says, I I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. So this guy was traveling along with Paul, right? And he gets sick, and surely Paul prayed for him with great faith, right? And surely this missionary man himself prayed for his own healing in great faith, and he does not get healed, and so Paul has to leave him in the care probably of physicians in that city and go on with his work. So we've got a clear story in the Bible where faith is not enough to immediately heal somebody. It does not work like that. So how does it work? What do these words mean, right? Because it it does say the prayer of faith will make the sick person well and God will raise him up. Well, remember what I said earlier about the Lord's return coming back into play, right? This whole thing is under the heading of wait patiently for the Lord's return. And part of that is praying in faith for healing when you are sick. And look at the language that he uses. He says, the prayer of faith will restore the person who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, what's going to happen to our bodies when Jesus returns? They're going to be restored, and they're going to be raised up, right? Every person who has faith in Jesus, who is waiting eagerly for his return and praying for that healing, can receive it as a guarantee that when he comes, he will restore your body fully and completely, and he will raise your body up from the grave. Now, that's not to take away from the power of a great miracle that could happen, but it is to say that every time we see a miracle in the church or every time we read about it in the Bible, it is just a glimpse of what is coming when Jesus comes back. We have read stories of the blind gaining their sight, of the lame walking, of the sick being healed. We've read stories of the dead being raised. Some of us have seen that happen in our lives. It's happened recently in our church before in a very dramatic way, and we rejoice when that happens. But it all points forward to a day when all of the blind with faith in Jesus will see and all of the sick with faith in Jesus will be healed and all of the dead with faith in Jesus will rise to be restored and never get sick or blind or hungry or shed one more tear ever again. And that's what James is hinting at here. The fact that if the Lord does heal you, it is a picture of what is to come and what a glorious picture it is. So all those who pray in faith, all those who trust in Jesus to save them and therefore pray, one day they'll be restored and raised up from their graves and taste complete forgiveness of the ailments ailments that hurt them. Some of them will be healed miraculously now through prayer. Now let's, let's skip ahead to the second half of verse 16 and let's see who this second sort of person is who gets great power in their prayer. And this one encourages me so much. I think it's going to encourage you too. Let's look at verse 16, starting at the second sentence. He says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. 
And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruits. Some translations of verse 16 will say, the effective prayer of a righteous man has great power. So who are those people, that second group of people whose prayers get a special measure of power added to them? Righteous people. Nobody is sinless, but some people are blameless, right? No archer hits a bullseye every shot, but some people are still really good at archery. And these blameless people, these kind of people that you meet and you say, that is a man of God right there. That's a woman of God right there, a righteous person. The Lord gives to them special power, great power in their prayers. And if you go to this church, you walk the halls and you sit with the pews with several people who are just like that. And I think that's a big reason that we have seen prayers answered in our church recently and throughout our history as well. Now, he gives us a picture that to me is so compelling. Some of you know about Elijah the prophet, right? He was an Old Testament prophet. He was a great man of God, and so many miracles came through him. A dead boy came back to life as Elijah prayed over him. A widow was fed for many years miraculously because he would have did. He called down fire from heaven one time to consume this offering. And one time, he prayed that there would be a drought in the land to, to prove one of the points that God was making. He prayed there'd be a drought in the land for three years, and it didn't pray again until he prayed that the rain would come back. And as I read that story as a boy, I thought the thing that I wonder if many of you think too, well, of course those things happened. He was a prophet, right? That's what, that's what prophets get to do. They get to do cool stuff like call down fire from heaven and get it to consume an offering. Like that, We don't get that kind of power. Like regular people like you and me, we don't have that special gift of calling down fire from heaven. But James's point, what he's trying to do is destroy that misconception. He's trying to encourage you by showing you actually none of that happened because Elijah was a prophet. Because he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he was righteous, and he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. If that doesn't make you want to walk in holiness, man, the power and prayer that can come from a righteous person like Elijah, who prays earnestly, and it might make some of us step back for a second and think, now wait a minute, are you saying that my prayers are not as powerful because I'm secretly looking at pornography? Yes, I think that is what the Bible is saying right here. If you were walking blamelessly, your prayers would have more power. Are my prayers not as powerful because I'm harboring bitterness against a friend of mine? Yes, I think so. If you walked in blamelessness, your prayers would have more power. This is why 1 Peter tells husbands to live sensitively with their wives so that their prayers will not be hindered because the prayers of a blameless and righteous person have great power. And we have right there a great motivation to walk in holiness, to live blamelessly before God and to see what amazing things he does through us. So, man, that makes me want to pray so much. I just, I want to stop preaching right now and just pray. Like, let's just throw the rest of the sermon out. Oh, gosh. But we got to look at one more verse here. Let's look at verse 16, the, the first part of it, because that tells us what to do in response to this, and we got to finish it. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another 
and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So although calling the elders in to anoint you with oil when you're sick is important, and although righteousness is important in prayer, here's one thing that we can all do together to make our prayers more powerful. We can restore our relationships by confessing our sins to one another, by just being quick to say, hey, I was wrong and I did this to you. Will you forgive me? So there's harmony and unity in the church, and then we can unite together in prayer. And when we do that, there's a third kind of special power that comes down when righteous, forgiven people who have forgiven each other unite in a spirit of prayer and say, God, would you heal this person? God, would you bring this person to Christ? God, would you grant our requests? He looks down with a tendency to smile and say, yes, I am glad to do that for you. People are healed and great things happen. So there's a third thing that we can all do to bring really great power here in our church. Not a certain person, but a church united and confessing their sins to one another to ask God for something. So before we part this morning, I just want to think together about the times that this has happened recently in our church. Because there have been times when we've obeyed parts of this and God has responded and we got to give glory and testimony for that. So I just want to think back to this very last week. Uh, Walter and Rose Howard, as many of you know, Walter was scheduled to go into surgery. And the day before, his wife Rose finds out that she needs a very similar surgery at a different hospital on the other side of town. And so they wind up in surgery in different hospitals at the same time, with some amount of risk to their health in these surgeries, all alone with church people going and visiting them and the Spirit of God there, but not in each other's arms for comfort, unable to care for each other. And so the people of God united and prayed for them. And our deacons, many of them, went out and visited them and prayed for them. And now Walter and Rose sit in their house together again right now. They made it through their surgery. Both of them were a great success. And the Lord answered the prayers of righteous people who united in prayer. Just a month or two ago, we learned that our brother Rob Bailey was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And we all became very fearful for him. Uh, and so we gathered together our deacons who are righteous men who pray for one another and pray for the church. And we put our hands on Rob and we said, Father, would you pray, would you heal this man? And a short time later, he learns that he's qualified for a very selective procedure all the way in Texas that can fix this problem, that can bring healing to him in a way that we did not expect, and we rejoiced for it. Well, then a few weeks later, we find out the insurance company's not going to cover it. So, oh, so we all get our hopes down again. And so the people of God get together again, and they pray again. And the insurance company somehow changed their minds and decided that at great expense to themselves, they were going to cover Rob's Treatment. And now Rob's flying down there once a month getting this treatment that we're confident will bring healing to him. Many of you know that when I first moved up here, my family had been trading stomach aches and, and head colds and all that kind of thing throughout our house for months, right? I told you this story. Somebody was sick every day for like the whole winter. I came up here in February. My family was still down in Kentucky. We had our first prayer meeting. I said, guys, would you pray for our family? We're weary because somebody in our house has been sick every day for the past two months. You guys prayed and that was the end of sickness in our house. Righteous people got together and prayed and that sickness was over. And only a few weeks ago, I injured my eye, and many of you were right here in the room when a righteous man, Walter Howard, stood right here and prayed for me, and you guys joined with him, and the Lord healed my eye in that very instant. 
Guys, when we do the stuff in this text, God responds. When we join together in unity and say, brother, I've sinned against you, will you forgive me? And we pray for one another, God responds. When righteous people pray, God responds. And I pray.